So, Allison, um, you know, as you've told me off air, Polar is about to go national. And I I really do feel in my spirit that they're the dream sponsor for this show, other than Duncan, obviously. And I would really love to land them as like an advertiser on our show. But I think we, we need a really specific approach because I imagine a lot of people are going after them right now. I mean... Are we not both like Worcester County's best kept secret? Like all three of us together. (laughs) Three of us together. What if we come at them and we're like, listen, a lot of people think we're polar opposites, but we're not in the same way that polar might think itself. I'm holding the bottle right now. Like I'm going for it. Polar is the opposite of fine dining. And it's not because it's actually, you know, it's both a high and a low product, if you will. Listeners need to know that this started because Mary is drinking from a bottle approximately the size of her head. Just listen. Here's the situation. We're in a heat wave right now. Am I in an air conditioned space? Yes. Unrelated. I'm holding a liter bottle of polar raspberry (laughs) rosé finest summer flavor out there. This is my ad. Deal with it. She wore a raspberry rose. <gasps> Allison, you know I love Prince. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that gift. I'm just saying if anyone out there knows anyone at Polar, you know, like we'll keep spitballing ideas, but we're ready. I'm ready. We're sitting by the phone. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison, sponsored by Polar Seltzer. Sponsored by Polar Seltzer and Dunkin' Donuts. Thank you. You know, if you want an iced coffee, um, it's the place to be. Although I will say I'm still, you know, like the Frosty Chino at Wendy's is, is still a subject of interest. I, I like that this show is actually fueled by very generous patrons of our Patreon, mm-hmm. but we insist on shilling out for corporations that have no interest in us. You know, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound great. I'll say that. But, you know, <laughs> at the same time, Allison, I just want to encourage us and our listeners to be kind to ourselves because, you know, the world's a hellscape. And all I have to comfort me right now, other than, of course, you know, loving family members and my wife, but that's unrelated right now. It doesn't feel relevant is this giant liter bottle of raspberry rosé, which I'm going to work myself through. I'm going to work my way through this bottle the course of this recording. We talk about things we love. You know, obviously we love Polar. It helps us sustain us. We are in a heat wave. Sure. They gave us summer early because they knew we needed it. Bachelor, being wise and cautious, is still giving us Claire Crawley's season, but is filming at Adela Quinta, and I am now 10 times more fascinated And they're doing it the safe way. It's like these companies are giving us exactly what we want the way we need it. And I appreciate that. I feel like, you know, in a different time, you know, we're going to get into the Roosevelt's. But, you know, FDR in in a comparable moment, different but comparable, gave us the WPA, the CCC. You know, what do we have right now? I have my raspberry rosé polar. I have The Bachelor filming in a La Quinta, however you say it, in 119 degree weather. That's what I've heard. Honestly, the amount of sweat on their faces in the best of times on this show is so disturbing to me. Like, I want to, like, wipe the screen with a with a towel when I watch. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I have to watch this. I'm just saying this is what we're at. This is where we're at. This is what we've been given. 
I think when we're torn between the poles of grappling with the potential, you know, full erosion of our democracy with a suspended election or worrying about, you know, 40 some odd bachelors and Claire in La Quinta, there's just days where you can manage one more than the other. That's right. You I'm in a La Quinta day. I'm in a La Quinta day. Yeah. I mean, that's my lifestyle at this at this stage of the game. Wow. It's what I can afford my mental energy for. I mean, Allison, you talked about this on a previous episode and sort of predicted that if this pandemic continued into Leo season, it would be a problem. And I'm here to report as a Leo in Leo season that it is indeed a problem. Sure is. My you birthday have is been so brave. You're uh, so thank brave. you. Thank you. Thank you, Allison. I mean, it's like, my God, what does a person have to do to get recognized around here? It's like... <laughs> Just kidding. Um, Speaking of recognition, I just want to give you a public shout out on this show. I jokingly but not have been like, I need a skateboard in my life. Like taking me back to my teen years when I actually did skateboard. Not well, but, you know, it was aspirational. I just wanted to wear Vans and be cool. Um, My wife has refused to buy me a skateboard. She's morally against it, um, as is apparently everyone else in my life, except for you. I mean, Allison, I I can't even tell you the thrill of getting a package in the mail. Anna filmed me opening it without my knowledge. So like maybe I will share an edited version of this video. I'll have to like (laughs) review the footage. I was so stunned to be getting a skateboard period. And then when I opened that skateboard and saw that it was Emancipation of Mimi, Mariah Carey themed, I lost it. It's beautiful. It's a work of art. And, you know, ever since Anna's been like, well, wheels didn't come with it. And I think that's a message to you. Uh, Carrie Underwood told me that Jesus took the wheels. But the actual situation is I understood so little about what I was purchasing. Fair. I think I just checked the wrong box. But I also feel like it was a beautiful compromise between your desire to own a beautiful skateboard and Anna's desire to have both your legs still work. So I think it was kind of, and cause she kind of sent me a thumbs up on the side. It was genuinely unintentional. I don't know I what the you. words mean. So <laughs> listen, I'm with you. I get it. But you know, thank you. Thank you for your radical acts of friendship. I feel like something beautiful about this show and the community of it is that It's something that really centers friendship in a world and a time when we don't really have much studies of friendship or conversations Mm -hmm. about its meaning as primary relationships in our lives. And you're very, very important to me, even when you don't buy me a skateboard. And in this time when we're both super stressed out and the world is a mess, like it's very nice to have each other and this show and our friends. So thank you. I appreciate you, not just for your gifts, but like your presence is my present to quote a line that somebody once put on an invitation to a party I was invited to. (laughs) I still bought them a gift. Thank you. I have manners. As you should and not Chinese checkers. (gasps) Fabulous callback. Yes. Too Um, too relevant. Also, you did buy me Alice Roosevelt's memoir that arrived and that was an absolute shock. Thank you for that. I am out of my mind with like excitement about this. I have other books that I'm supposed to read first for work reasons and I just frankly don't want to. (laughs) I need it. I brought my Alice bio with me today to call on as we talk about this book. I'm people have written to me about this and I haven't posted the cover yet, but it's called Alice Rose Alice Alice Roosevelt Longworth from White House Princess to Washington Power Broker by Stacy Cordry. This book is not small, and I do feel like I've almost killed myself several times reading this before bed because I have a hardcover copy from Borders. R.I.P. Borders. <laughs> And it's almost falling on my face as I fall asleep. And it's like, 
I'm taking my life into my hands. I don't know if I'll make it into my 34th year, which incidentally starts tomorrow. But if I'm taken out, just know it's by this book. And I did it for the pod. Thank you. Thank you. Allison, I know we could talk more about pop culture, but honestly, we both arrived here tonight thinking that this book warrants at least an hour of our time. I don't think we have time (laughs) to discuss literally anything else. I read this and it caused such a state in me. I read this book four hours ago and I haven't stopped thinking about it, which is not like a, a major endorsement, but like do know that it was important to me. Yes. Honestly, like I've been grappling with and listeners who have not recently looked back at this book can answer this at the end of the pod. Would you rather have a quarantine birthday over Zoom or the birthday weekend that Samantha Parkington has in 1905? Wow. I know my answer. What is your answer? I I would rather be in quarantine than deal with what this young lady has to deal with. Correct. It's so unconscionable. Okay, (laughs) the ice cream trauma in this book, there should have been a warning on the outside. I read this in a hospital yesterday, like getting a medical procedure. I won't go into it, but I'm getting an infusion. A woman next to me, I already told Allison this off air. I was so offended. I had to like also have a second doctor visit while I was having this infusion. So confusingly, I was on a video call with a doctor This woman chooses this moment to turn on a music channel on a television, which in the year of our Lord 2020, what in God's name are you doing? She turns on the Alan Jackson channel. I'm guessing that's what it was. And I had to hear that song that's like way down south in the something, Chad Hoochie. It gets hotter (laughs) than a hoochie coochie. Literally, he sings that line and my doctor's like, wow, a lot of interesting sounds where you are. And I was like, ah, and talking about going sailing with her son. It's like, ma'am. I am in the grips of something right here. There is only one person on this planet who makes me feel so alive, so insane, so inquisitive. (laughs) I will say I I am surprised because usually like nothing is lowbrow to you. So I think it's like a function of your. I actually like that song. It's on my country music workout playlist. But I was like in context in this space. Like there's certain music that's fine to work out to or like if you're out and you hear it when I'm like literally people are having like medical moments happening and you're breezing around in a caftan making us listen to this and like asking us if we've gone sailing this summer. No, ma'am. I don't own a sailboat. Okay. (laughs) Um, honestly, is she like Samantha's granddaughter? I was going to say, I was like, are you married to Uncle Guard's son? I guess. (laughs) All right, we got to get into this because I have so much to say. Let's just do it. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're 
you're a creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. Okay, Mary, I've been waiting to say these words. Let's hear it. Happy birthday, Samantha. A springtime story is written by Valerie Tripp. A oh my God, of- the trip of a lifetime. <laughs> a, resident, a resident of Maryland, United States. A baby boomer. Your favorite character killer and mine, aside from George R. R. Martin. Oof. She read books one through three and she said, oh, are you attached to Nellie? Never going to hear a word about her again. (laughs) Never going to hear about her again. She put on a tape of the 1982 classic Annie. And she was like, I see what you did. I'm multiplying it by two. I'm making their twins, them twins, who are somehow related to Aunt Cornelia, who's both timeless and 20 question mark. I don't know. Oh, my God. The only person who can take us from orphan chic to orphan bleak. So, okay, no one has parents. That's my subtitle of this book, but I am going to read the actual, like, publisher's pleasant company. Um, I do just also want to know that these names sound fake to you. They sound extra fake to me. Okay, great. The the illustrations for this were by Robert Grace and Niles, no first name, Mm -hmm. and Jana um, Fothergill. I don't think these That's are not, real people. Is it an anagram for like <laughs> her actual secret message? I I think so. Okay, these could be real people. I'm choosing just for this. We have not researched show. that. We have not researched that. We have not researched that. I'll just say the endless catalog of people involved in this series. We're going to talk about it with the illustrations. But first, Samantha Mary Parkington was born. A Gemini, May. Oh, God. 1895. This is her story. Samantha's birthday party is nearly ruined when Eddie Ryland plays a mean trick. Then Agnes and Agatha, Cornelia's 10-year-old twin sisters, there is a story there, save the day with an invitation to visit New York City. Samantha loves the twins' carefree attitude and can't wait to go, especially since the trip, I see you, will include a stop at a fancy ice cream parlor. But when the girls carelessly break some rules, they suddenly find themselves racing dangerously through the big city, and the path they take leads to surprising discoveries. (laughs) That, like, (sighs) honestly, like, the stamina I've needed to, like, get through this pandemic almost just broke reading those four sentences. Yeah. Um. I loved this book and um, I mean, Samantha has like activated something in us. Like I listened back to our episodes and like there's laughter, there's tears. There's just like the range of human emotion is coming out (laughs) in these books. And it's like, you know, that line in The Godfather, it's like just when I thought I was out, you pulled me back in. That's (laughs) me with Val Tripp and Samantha where I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it this week. Like things are too tough. Then I read these books and I'm like, ah, I guess I'm back in it. I mean, Kelly Clarkson said some people wait a lifetime. She was not kidding. 
I just want to share with you the chapter titles because I think they'll also help us. Okay. What I didn't like about this summary is it starts really like a good amount into the story. Chapter one is Petticoats and Petite Fours. Chapter two is The Party. Three is New York City. Four is Follow That Dog. And five is Changes. This is actually a book about domestic manufacturer of ice cream male toxicity and voting rights but you wouldn't know that from that summary yes and also like privilege and gift culture and like there's there's so much it's like this is an onion you can keep pulling back these layers robert stack is actually i think a presence in this book because nelly is missing and it's an unsolved mystery and no one cares where is nelly It's stunning to me. Okay, let me just back up even further because there's so much to get into. I need to actually start on page one. (laughs) If you will open your hymnal to page one. First of all, I've blown through the the title page. I'm like, oh, dear God, it's Valerie Tripp. Book four, here we go. Illustrator names feel fake, but that's probably a message from Val. (laughs) I've accepted that. I'm moving on. I'm making a mental note to circle back. It's probably an anagram. I'm thinking about it. It's like there's so much subtlety. And then... Boom. Okay. This is, we have these twins. Okay. I'm just going to read this. Two redheaded headed curly tops whirled into her room, jumped up on her bed and pushed a huge bouquet of roses into her arms. This is for you, said the redhead named Agnes. Jiminy, exclaimed Samantha. It's beautiful. We made it ourselves, added Agatha proudly. Agatha looked exactly like Agnes. They were Aunt Cornelia's twin sisters. Now that Uncle Gard and Cornelia were married, Agnes and Agatha were Samantha's newest friends and favorite relatives. This is page one, when Val delivers inadvertently the news that she has decided to rob us of Uncle Gard and Cornelia's wedding. Allison's losing it. Allison, this is wrong on so many levels. Let me say that my first thoughts reading this sentence, now that Uncle Gard and Cornelia were married, I paused and said to myself, to each other? Okay. I'm sorry. Is that an irrational question with the narratives that we've been presented with? I can't. Um, no. Pull it together. I need help here. I'm on boots on the ground. What is happening? This page honestly shocked me. So I will say, I don't know why I feel the need to tell listeners like the context in which I read these books, but I do. Feel free. I picked this up on Wednesday and I read this page and I took a pause and I put this book down because I said, Allison, you're not strong enough. You're not. You have to be in the right headspace to get into this book because it's like Val will like she's not like taking any prisoners. She's not, you know, like she will not compromise on whatever this vision is. I don't know what it is where it's like on the one hand, we have secret messages in the form of the anagram of the illustrators. I I haven't unpacked that yet. But then if you pull if you turn to page four, it's like, what was this design meeting When it's like, okay, we're hitting you over the heads, books one through three, with like orphan sheet culture. It's like, we get it. She has no, her parents are dead. I'm like banging my fist on the desk. Her parents are dead. We will never speak about that. Never. But but also it's like, you will write, your exposition is to cover a major plot point in like one sentence on page one of this book. And then on page four, the lack of subtlety. If we could see these twins, we will post a picture of this illustration. It's like Val gave the Annie movie poster. 
to whichever illustrator, fake illustrator did this and was like, I want this. And they probably came back to her with something that was like redheaded, identical twins. It sort of looked like Annie. And she was like, "Uh uh-uh, no, I want exactly what that actress looks like. And Pleasant's like, but we got to make it different eyes or something like copyright. And she's like, no. And they're like, but we'd have to pay this child actor. And Val's like, you think I care about children's rights? And Pleasant's like, but that's what this book's going to tackle. Like, we're getting into that. And she's like, you think I've read books one through three of this series? Did I write those? No. Did my contract say I read those? No. Allison's like, (laughs) I feel like I've destroyed you. I'm sorry. I came in really hot. No. So the writing... I also have sunblock in my eye for reasons that I don't, I don't need to divulge. Okay. Um, just know that also, like, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make this about, like, my particular DNA. You know that as a blue-eyed person, like, I have struggles. Oh, my God. If I had a dollar for every time Allison <laughs> has invoked how blue people with blue eyes process colors differently in light. It's true. You know, blue-eyed Allison, people, back me up. No one oh writes God. songs about us. What are you talking about? Did Van Morrison ever pause to reflect on how his song might make me feel? But what about, isn't there a song by The Who? It escapes right now. It's like blue-eyed something. I, listen, perhaps. I mean, I, I don't want to say I'm underrepresented. I'm not, but. Oh, my God. Are you a Leo? Have you checked? Because this is like Leo behavior. Uh, several listeners have said that I am behind blue eyes, Samantha. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's fine. By the who? You have that. I don't really like but that even song. Then, but even like they're changing the subject. It's like, oh yeah, fair. <laughs> okay. So something very interesting to me about this book, and that is so strikingly different because I want to compare for a second, and we haven't reread Molly, but I want to focus in on Kirsten and Samantha for a second because. They're all being written contemporaneously, right? Like really in this like tight early window of they're going to launch these first three characters. And something that was fascinating to me is like how similar her Samantha's birthday experience is to Kirsten's. Like Hmm. the visuals of the flower crown, the visual of the friends sitting around and the gift giving. But what was also, you know, kind of like an odd parallel, but also sort of troubling Kirsten loses a best friend, Marta. I know everyone is not over it. I'm sorry. I don't mean to drag it out, but it's true. And then Samantha effectively loses a best friend with Nellie being excluded from the narrative. And I thought it was interesting that like almost to facilitate Samantha having a rich girl day in the silly uh, in the city, almost by necessity, Nellie is written out. Mm -hmm. And it's like she is flying high with Agnes and Agatha in the city and and Grand Mary is of course part of it. Um, But it was sort of like striking to me those similarities, like how similar the birthdays were. And then of course the ice cream, which has been, you know, continuity across several of the books, but in a lot of ways, like the hollowness of this friendship, like Agnes and Agatha act out and it kind of makes Samantha uncomfortable. She's not sure what her own boundaries are. And I guess it just has me racking my brain. Like, was it ever real with Nellie? Yes. And I've, I've had the same thoughts where, in a way, it's like in the past two books, really this book, certainly, there's such an embrace of conspicuous consumption, whether it's the treats in the birthday party, um, all of her gifts are purchased for her. We just had a book that celebrated handmade gifts. And things that were invested in meaning of like actual labor by the person making the gift. And that's all been completely discarded. 
And so now it's like Samantha has this like high living adventure, living spree with the twins, but also it's conspicuous consumption in that she gets a doll's pram. We're getting her of ourselves towards the end of the book. Uncle guard gives her um, like a stroller for her dolls, which is completely and irresponsibly abandoned on the street in pursuit of tracking down a dog that ran off because they didn't follow the rules. Correct. These characters felt a little out of left field for me. I think they were like thrown in like it was Valerie's calling card of like she didn't get to do Samantha yet or sorry, she didn't get to do Felicity yet. And she's like, oh, you like redheads? Don't worry, I'm coming back. You like pets? Don't worry, I'm coming back. Like she's. But what was striking to me is the scene on page 14 of Samantha's birthday party where they're sitting around in a circle and they're beautifully dressed and there's sort of a cute like tongue in cheek line about how even the dolls are sitting up straight like everyone is very prim and proper and it's very hollow to Samantha actually like there's really no joy there and it's interesting that it's not her classmates like again that lack of continuity it's not people we've met before like even when we kind of were like okay you know things are kind of playing out with Harriet over and over and Addie it was a nice continuity that we could follow like how characters were evolving I was like, who are these people? Yeah, I mean, all of these girls seemed like sent in from central casting. Like, Grand Mary hired them to be Samantha's friends on her birthday with the understanding that these girls would be of a similar class and background and they would know to come and what kinds of gifts to provide. And they're all sitting there in this circle wearing, like, their party dresses and she's wearing her flower crown. And there's this interesting moment to me of, like, I like a moment when you see kids trying to pretend to be adults So the lulls in the party are when the kids are trying to perform the kind of politeness and manners that, excuse me, the adults in their lives have taught them to take on. And it doesn't really fit. It's like clothing that doesn't really fit because they're not adults yet. They're still kids and they want to kind of run around. And so that part sort of tracks with a 10 year old. But what doesn't track is that she has this sort of intimacy with the twins as friends where it's like they've already have history with Eddie. And it's like, how long have these twins been around? And who are these friends from school who like never come over and play, but are somehow like at the birthday party? And I should say, I misspoke. These girls at the party are the people from school, but they're like the tangential tangential people from other books who she wasn't friends with. So to me, Grand Mary controlled the guest list. That's what we're learning. Because it's only rich girls and they're kind of sitting out and it's hot because it's late May. Like people are kind of uncomfortable. Um, she gets a teddy bear, which again, it's like we get we get it. We get the connection. They're hitting us way over the head. And it gives us uh, an opportunity for Agnes to say teddy bears are the newest thing in New York. We wanted you to have one of your very own. And then this leads to the teddy bear being sort of like attacked and like mishandled by the dog. I'm going to say something and I hope it's not too controversial for this show. Oh boy. And we do need to talk about the dog's name because it's a problem. This book does a serious cat erasure to the suffrage movement that I'm not going to stand for. Oh boy. I I figured this would come up. So I would love to just sort of like give you this moment. Maybe pause. You might say. (laughs) So in the course of this book, we learned that Aunt Guard and and Cornelia have gotten married. 
great. Apparently, you know, we're not going to get any more details. All we know is that they've acquired a puppy, which I feel like is their way of telling Grand Mary, like, this is the only grandchild you're getting from us. Yeah. Is is this That's pet. how I take that. Yes. Here's the issue. Number one, in Britain and in other parts of the world, cats were used in anti-suffrage material to demean and make fun of women. Um, This notion, like, as they say in Little Women, it's as useful to educate a woman as a female cat. Cats are, like, used to degrade in some of the imagery, but then women reclaim it. And two women actually travel cross-country with a cat to promote women's suffrage. Aunt Cornelia owning a dog does not track at all for me, and I don't like it. Yeah, it feels like, I mean, just like everything else in this book, it's kind of dropped in and it's not really, there's no preparation for any of this stuff. And I'm sure a lot of this comes from a new author jumping in who may or may not have knowledge of what happened in this series previously. But I feel like every author kind of, you know, gets into this series and is like, okay, this is what I'm setting up to pay off in future books. Or this is what I think this character would be like, or the friends they would have, or the things that they would deeply care about. And it all gets upended every single book. Like we have this notion of like Samantha loves to think about people and like make very personalized gifts for people. And like, you know, her friendships and her family are so important in these traditions. And then you have this like, so you have this image of her as really valuing family tradition and together in his time. Literally this next book, Grand Mary gives her a flower crown that she notes was her own mother's when she was 10 years old. And Samantha accepts it with, and is grateful for it, but there's no questions. There's no, no like, oh, wow. Like, what was my mom like when she turned 10? Or, you know, um, the sense that they're taking a beat in the book to really acknowledge, like, to punch this as like, yes, she cares about family stuff. This is why this is in here. It's just sort of like a throwaway line. So one of the things that comes out in this book, I'm absolutely agreeing with you. Compared to Felicity and her mother, right? Like, even though they had, like, the friction, like, the tenderness of them learning something together and then caring for Polly, the tenderness of Addie and her mother, Kirsten and her mother, even when they have friction, it also, like, pulls them together. Samantha and Grand Mary are sort of, like, strangers who coexist. Mm-hmm. And where the arc of this book and this series goes is Samantha is always teaching Grand Mary something. Grand Mary's like, oh, gosh, like, you got me again, <laughs> Samantha. And a review that I read pointed out that we're supposed to believe that Grand Mary is both incredibly strict and then also always lenient the second anything comes up. Yeah. So there's like a weird kind of lack of relationship between the two of them. And when she hands her the crown, like nothing really transpires. There's no conversation about it. I don't know if that's just to skip getting into the mother's backstory Every other character we've read, that would have been two pages. Yeah. Like, think of Josefina, of course. Of course. Anything that belonged to her mother was so important to her. Well, and especially because, like, the pre, literally the previous book has led us to assume that this is going to be a really important moment in her story. Yes. Like, a moment of connection with Grand Mary, who denied her the chance to decorate the house with Christmas decorations earlier, to have that kind of bonding moment. I have not forgotten that. You're not over it. I'm not over it. But I'm just saying, like, so here Grand Mary's like, hey, here's something from the family archive. It was your mother's. Like, I have taken care to save and preserve this so that you might wear it. And I'm not going to have, I will have no conversation with you about this. Not really. And Samantha's like, okay, like, back outside. It's surprising. It's definitely like a, 
a, a lack of character consistency, I think, with her. And other people did actually point this out in the stories that she cherishes these things. Even like one of the girls who's kind of her frenemy from school gets her a piano book. And when Guard gets her the Christmas carols, like it's very precious to her. And it's just part of a list in this one. Like, I don't know what Val had up her sleeve with the twins, but they come in and there's sort of... um there's a, a simile in this book. Like, you know, they're like popping popcorn. Like they're full of ideas and they're like bubbling up. And it's like, honestly, they're like a burn on the stove. Yes. It's like <laughs> enough. Like it was exhausting. All of their hijinks. I was like, guys, honestly, there's times when thwarting the rules is done for the sake of the greater good. And you can kind of understand or justify it later. And it's like, oh, okay, I see why they did excuse me, why they did that. And and from a place of like parents just don't understand. It's like in this situation, actually their guardians actually do understand what will keep them safe. And they just sort of will. It's like anarchy. They willfully disregard anything that Cornelia says to them or Grand Mary. Like even the opening image of them, they're so privileged that when they present Samantha with a bouquet (laughs) of roses for her birthday, it's wrapped in lace. And Samantha's like, wow, like where's this lace from? And they're like, oh, like, ho-hum like we ripped out a liner or like some trim of one of our dresses and it's just like wow we've really come a long way from the book with the peek into the past which almost exclusively featured photographs of historic children like falling asleep in night school because they were working in textile factories all day like here we've moved on to the twins who you know it's nothing to them to destroy a dress to you know add some kind of like flair to flat like a floral gift for their new cousin that's where they feel very 80s to me like they actually like these characters feel so 80s to me in a way that is completely distinct from a felicity or a josefina these twins on their family crest i'm almost certain it says greed is good yes and then where is the continuity with them and their sister being cornelia and do any of them have parents That's what I'm saying. It's like, I'm sorry, where are Cornelia's parents? And why is Cornelia on the hook to care for these twins all the time? That's not clear. It's not clear how they've come to visit. I do just want to dwell for a second on, because this was something I also saw, like in people talking about this book online, the way that Eddie is presented as kind of, um, like he's a troublemaker in a different way, like in a way that is not amusing to Samantha. And I thought it was interesting. I read in a review. Um, I just want to like, this is our friend Allie Book, Glass Hunter. We don't know you, but I, I like your reviews. She says the twins were over the top with their immediate physical threats on violence on Eddie as soon as he popped into the story. Sure, he was annoying, but the girls were unnecessarily mean. I don't like the girls versus boys theme. And I think that's a very shrewd comment because I think in some ways it's like, so productive i loved addie's relationship with her brother right like to show these positive relationships between young men and young women like even amos i don't know that i ever really got his deal in the kirsten books but i was glad he was there sure like he was he wasn't a menace and it seems like you're saying kind of how these twins feel ripped from like the celluloid of the annie movie he feels cartoony Yeah, I mean, he almost feels like um, Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver or like... A hundred percent. You know, like like Dennis the Menace. And you're like, okay, we get it. I understand why you're in this. But it's not... 
it's not even really funny. It just comes out cruel because you could also read it as like, okay, here's this neighbor boy. His parents are living. He is from an affluent family as well. He takes this opportunity. I mean, I don't think there was anything wrong with them saying, hey, Eddie, this is just a party for girls. It's not really personal to you, but it's like, it's not going to happen. Right. And he wanted, he allegedly was like, well, I want ice cream. And then we learned he got ice cream in the kitchen. So it was like he was never going to be deprived of ice cream. But then he takes it upon himself to put salt in everyone else's ice cream. All the remaining ice cream is going to be molded. And there's something about that that's so like sitcom hijink to me <laughs> yes. in a way that's just yes. really annoying at a certain point. Because it's like, we don't need a plot point, a B, a B plot line that centers Eddie. No. Or their weird relationship because it's like, I don't care and it doesn't feel real. I think so much of that, what it does reflect very clearly is their class. Because if you think about historic photographs of young boys and young girls from this exact time period of inner cities or on farms, there is gender segregation, of course, right? But I think so much of this is heightened by Grand Mary's insistence that she be thinking of herself as almost like a pre-lady or becoming mm. a lady and that it's already inappropriate for her to have a casual relationship with Eddie. Like that says a lot about their class and their race, I think way more than than anything else, like even just him being annoying. And it kind of reminds me of if you read histories of some of the early um, day or like finishing schools for rich girls in New York, particularly New York City. Um, I remember reading in a history of a debutante who was one of the first students to attend the Spence School, which is like for the top families in New York, that the person who ran the school ran a very tight ship and was absolutely a no-go with any interactions with men. And so they would read mail sent to the school for students. And I think they opened up a letter. And if they thought it was too affectionate, which it was in one case, and they didn't give an example of what that meant, for them. They basically were like, this ends with either a proposal or you drop out of school. They're like, it's a really like non-negotiable situation. And we're talking about girls who are probably 14, 15. So not that much older than Samantha, like certainly a meaningful number of years. So I think to understand how rich people like viewed those kind of relationships between girls and boys as being by necessity, highly regulated. That makes sense. But then that also, to return to your point about Grammarie before, also makes it glaringly nonsensical that when they have that scuffle and one of the twins like either punches Eddie or pushes him down and they tear their, um, they like scrape their knee or like tear their tights. Grandmary comes out and there's the, Val makes sure to say in the description that she seems sort of like quietly pleased that there's been all this roughhousing with Eddie Um, even as she's outwardly like, well, maybe it's time to have lemonade now. Like we're moving on from this. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. I think that's about a blood feud that goes back with the Rylands. Wow. Centuries. Like truly. Do you think the Rylands have any relationship to what I assume was possibly like a civil war love affair? Yes. Okay. Just figured I would ask about that. I think like there's no way Right. Like Samantha being a baby of the 1890s, like her toddlerhood is inextricably linked with the violence of the Spanish-American War. It has to be. And it's like, where does Eddie come from? Like, 
is he a love child from when like dad was serving in Cuba and like Grand Mary? No, you know what I mean? Like there's too much. There's a lot going on with that. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you know, how did her parents actually die? I also, well, I mean, do the Rylands have something to do with it? I mean, and, and could we not attend the wedding because the guest list might reveal something about the landscape of this it's family's tension. It's too hot. So it's like, it's Val was hot. like, I can't leak that guest list. So we're just not going there. Um, I loved a reviewer who would only go by E. She was like, you don't get Respect. to know more. She says, this is one of my least favorites. How? Least favorite AG books. And she says, it is a discordant package of mini stories. I don't disagree Ooh, with that. That's fair. Like, she talks about the sabotage ice cream. She talks about New York. I need to know, like, are you a person who has, like, a romantic vision of New York of the past? Like, do you want to go to there? Me personally? Yeah. No. Okay. Like, why? Um, I'm a person who takes very seriously um, public bathrooms. Yeah. Questions of hygiene. Air quality, I'm very sense, I'm very like smell sensitive. So when I'm thinking about these streets with like horses running around and, you know, like public indoor plumbing being what it was at that stage, like there's not a lot for me there. I mean, I'm also someone that when they talk about building skyscrapers and, you know, people have those images on their wall when they're in college or whatever of like the guys eating sandwiches at lunch sitting on a skyscraper. No. On the steel beams. I literally, my palms sweat just even thinking about that because I'm so afraid of heights. So it's like there's so much going on that's, it's a no-go for me. But what about you? So I was surprised in some ways, like Samantha seems to go to a New York that's like older than the one she's actually in. Like I thought it would have been really cool for her to take a subway. Instead, they're in a horse-drawn, I'm looking for what exactly they call it, but it's still horse-drawn. It's not the subway. Um, which is exactly what Addie took almost 40, yeah, 40 years earlier. They're, um, they're in, in a, a street cab. car. Yeah. Oh, a cab. Yes. Um, Samantha practically jumped out of her skin as a big street car rumbled up to the curb in front of her. The oh, huge, yeah. yeah, huge sweaty horses. Again, like it's summer. Um, I ended up looking up some archival footage. Like there's very early footage uh, from 1905 of the subway from New York, which I think is very cool. I, I still find New York to be like excessive stimulation sensory wise. Like it's more like the sights are like too much. Um, I think what was an interesting choice is again, if she had been traveling through the city with Nellie, it would have been completely different. Mm -hmm the choice to kind of make her birthday like a joyful one and to make the central tension be kind of like foolish hijinks that could have happened anywhere. Like spoiler, she takes the pram to New York city or sorry, she receives the pram in New York city and they end up putting Cornelia's dog in it and the dog gets out and then runs up onto the stage during a suffrage presentation. Um, kind of interesting and like again just so completely different from her like running her own school 
Yeah. And also I think thinking across the books, um, I think moments of technology are really interesting in these books Mm. because they often drive the story in some way. They reveal something about the time and where the character fits into their time. So we've seen streetcars before with Addie, as you mentioned. But if you think about the role they played in Addie's world and her story, it was a lot about a barrier. It was not something that was accessible to her in in a totally transparent way. And we had a kind of sit with her through the shock of um, segregation in the North and and having to compromise or mitigate what she imagined freedom would be. For Samantha, a streetcar literally is just a momentary annoying barrier to her crossing a street um, to catch this dog. But it's also very clear that it's ephemeral to her. Like she is yeah. of such a class that she would never ride one anyway. So it's literally just a piece of the scenery that that functions for the plot as like yet another barrier um, to her, like, resolving this weird hijink that they kind of caused in the first place, whereas Addie's life is constantly defined by challenges not of her own making. And so it's like this, really, if you put them in in conversation with each other, it's such a stark contrast. Um, and it does seem strange. I mean, I guess it's like Val just has really embraced... Like, it's like my best friend's rich check. Like, that's Val. (laughs) Except she's cut out, like, the person who would be posting that TikTok. Like, Nellie is nowhere to be seen. It's like everyone's rich check. Everyone is rich. Everyone gets ice cream. Even Eddie, like, really ultimately, like, gets what he wants. I think part of what happens, too, is, like, as they are going through, they're in a horse-drawn carriage when Grand Mary and Samantha are going into the city. And they are going to meet up with Guard and Cornelia at their brownstone, which today is probably worth $30 million. Mm -hmm. You know, like if only. No big deal. They're traveling. They're downtown and they pass by the start of the suffrage demonstration. And little do they know, like the plot twist is that Cornelia will actually be speaking at this. And this kind of got me curious. Again, this comparison. Addie's lifetime is already about 20 years into like the strong suffrage movement in the United States. If you go back to Seneca Falls in the 1840s, and then by this time, the suffrage movement is really onto its next generation. Like it's a whole nother, Mm. at least generation of women who are trying to lead it. And I've been consistently puzzled by the 1904, 1905 time period. And people said, well, it's because, you know, they wanted to put women's suffrage in there. I was doing research about the New York women's suffrage movement, and this is still a weird time period. Hmm. It's really the decade after this where there's a lot more energy. I am not saying that there's not energy in 1904, 1905. This is actually right at the time where women specifically in New York are starting to say, okay, we have to, we have to be powerful again. We have to really try again because it was kind of at a nadir. There was Hmm. not a lot of activity. Um, and I did find like a few examples of people who were active, a woman named Maud Malone in New York City. But again, that like peak activity is closer to like the teens, like 1415, not 0405. Yeah, I, I found the periodization to be strange. And friend of the show, um, who we hope to speak to, Alison Lang, a historian of the suffrage movement, will obviously be able to speak to this far better than we can. But It's a weird moment to choose. And I also found the plot to be a strange juxtaposition. And again, I don't know how much Val is like putting into this, but, you know, maybe I'm like thinking too much about this. But 
to have the the two action points that are sort of happening in parallel that then come into conflict and crash into each other to be girls who are told to keep a dog on a leash and the dog takes itself off the leash and runs free juxtaposed with suffrage talk. Are we supposed to imagine that the dog and, and Cornelia are kind of pairs in this parallel story? I think Val did some research and was like, okay, cats were used as a derogatory stand in for women. She was like, not in this book. She was like, what's that other thing we call a dog? Yeah, that's Cornelia. That's Damn. that's where she Yeah, that's where she went. Damn. That was a choice. Did you want to say something about the name of the dog? So the dog goes I I was doing some research on this cuz I thought I like, kind of must be missing something. Well, the dog goes by J.I.P. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, well there has to be like some cuz that's a slur against like Romani people and right. I thought well like even if it's spelled J-I-P versus like G-Y-P short for gypsy I was like it ha- there has to be some other like parlance no so uh, we will not be saying the dog's name but I kept thinking oh there has to be like some other connection no I think it's random but it's like a word that's not you know it's very strange that that like of literally any name for a dog like it could have yeah. been anything and that's what they picked. I really that bumped against um I bumped up against that too when I was reading it. I also want your take on this suffrage movement cuz in in a way like the presentation we're getting. First of all, as if you've not read Alison Lang's great book, please pick it up, check it out. Yes. She does an analysis of the visual culture of the suffrage movement. It's really wonderful. One of the things that she points to in this kind of transformation from the suffrage movement in the 19th century to the 20th is that in visual culture, suffragettes became hot in the 20th century, like not to like put too fine a point on it. So Cornelia sort of represents to me like potential, like beautiful suffragette. And she's in this world with like all white suffragette protesters. And I have to say, you know, I, we won't bring up the dare speech contest again, but in terms of like, you know, really convincing your listeners in a really competitive way, she's possibly the most successful public speaker of all time, question mark? Is that is that right? She wins Grand Mary over with one talk. I mean... Um, so they, you know, the dog runs away and then the dog runs right into the arms of Cornelia and page 49. Cornelia gasped all three girls. The speaker was Cornelia. Cornelia's voice was strong and firm as she went on. The time has come for all of us to speak out. We must stand up for what we believe is right. I kind of love this because she like basically says nothing. Yep. It's like like, a total nonsense speech. Yeah. Time is now. Um, I was actually thinking about this in uh, comparison to um, AOC's speech about like being called the the word that we could call the dog in this book. And um, like the fact that it's been it's come out that she mostly did that on the fly like that Mm. she wrote an outline but did most of that on the fly and what's interesting is if they had put this like eight to ten years later or like changed the time period just a little bit it's interesting they use the word suffragette because that's more european right and it's suffragist over here but they use the word suffragette that person I mentioned before, because I was like, okay, who might she be based on um, this mod woman who is from New York City, 
what was happening around the early teens uh, leading up to the, the ratification in 1920 is women were borrowing more and more from suffragettes in Europe and they were standing on street corners and shouting like people hated this. Hmm. Um, the city that I work in, they would talk to men on their way out of work from the factories and try to convince them either to like approve at the national level or for referenda on the state level, which is ultimately what passed in New York in 1917. And men were like not here for this. Like, cause yeah. they're, it is a lot of like wealthier women or like organizers who are professional class, like Cornelia who are talking to men and men are like, no, thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, I think a lot of the issues like class shows up in a lot of these issues and in the things that you see in the iconography. Like if you look at anti-suffrage cartoons or images, there's a lot of like imagining the decline of the family if the man has to fulfill all these roles that the women typically does. So it's like a man who's like overwhelmed with children and it's like, I don't know how to cook or like, you know, what are we getting? And there's like a note that's like, I'm at a rally. I'm at a like meeting. Like, sorry, they're like, good luck. Eat leftovers. Bye. And the husband's like, leftovers. No. Like, no. <laughs> but it's like, you think guard or Cornelia ever make their own dinner? Do you think this is ever an issue in their house? No. And I mean, it's like kind of barely in mine either. Um, like, you know, that's like other people's gifts. But <sighs> also like to get to your reference to workers, like so much of the tactics that um, these wealthy suffragettes end up using draws on early labor activism, as you have yes. noted um, in other spaces. And I think that's a really important thing to note here, too. I just I I guess part of where maybe Valerie was thinking like she always is like 10,000 steps ahead. I feel like there would be such a market to re-meet Samantha between 1915 and 1920. Like yeah. I would love to meet her at 20 when she and Nellie are quietly dating at Correct. a women's college yep. where Nellie got a full scholarship. Grand Mary is dead. So doesn't matter like living on that blood money. I, I didn't know. Eddie's been was- drafted. He's out of here. I didn't know if I was going to go here. I'm not strong enough to listen to the whole album, but I did listen to two songs off of Folklore. Oh boy. And I do feel like Samantha Ghost wrote part of it. In what way? Tell me more. So like, like genuinely, like I listened to Exile and I was like, I'm not strong enough to process this. I'm serious. Like I'm literally like, I was like quietly weeping and I was like, I oh can't deal with this. I don't, I can't even really discern what that song is about. I'm serious. The last great American dynasty, mm-hmm. I feel like, is so like Nellie adjacent, like a middle class yeah. divorcee. You know, Nellie gets pressured into a marriage that's good for the family and bad for her, and she gets an early divorce. You know that. Well, you can also imagine maybe Samantha and Nellie within the world of Betty and that trilogy of songs that fans are saying is actually like a revelation about Taylor's queerness and her relationship with Carly Kloss. Because the the speaker in Betty is named James. And of course, Taylor Swift's name is James Taylor Swift. Yeah. So is this like some kind of revelation about this long suspected by queer community and other interested parties in this relationship? And you might say like, well, Sam, like, you know, like Sam is writing as like imagining as a male figure about Nellie. And it's like hiding in plain sight, which like it could be in these books as well. So there's a lot going on with that. And the great last great American dynasty, 
I think also does similar positioning to Samantha actually of saying like this world can't possibly handle me. Like I don't Mm -hmm. fit. I'm of this world. I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. Like my hijinks are beyond your comprehension and you can't, you don't have the skills to read my behavior as perfectly normal and fine um, because it imagines this Harkness woman is like swimming in a pool filled with Dom Perignon, which she allegedly did love that for her. Hope she was a Leo. But, you know, and also like Samantha doing things in her world, like advocating for child labor at the speech contest that makes people think like, whoa, like you totally like are outside the bounds of what we thought was possible. And in fact, it's like totally fine and within the bounds of what privilege allows for you to do in terms of choices in your life. I'm not saying Mm. I actually dislike, I've actually listened to the album a couple of times. And I think the turn to this, her embrace of white womanhood which is what this musical style choice is for her, I think is the correct move in, yeah. as opposed to the last couple albums. Um, and I actually did find it interesting. I'm continuing to listen to it. So I don't really want to fully get into the album right now just because I need some more time <laughs> no. to like let it marinate, so to speak. But these are just some initial thoughts. I mean, like enough people tell you, okay, like you should listen to it. And it's like, I know, like I know it's going to come up. You know that I like literally just got Apple Music on my phone recently. Yes. Like, it's, you know, I used to say, like, how would I acquire a song? Like, I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the yes. technology. I didn't. It's not um, It's not like, to quote Anna earlier today, like I was talking with um, a friend of hers about music and um, we were comparing notes about like Boy Genius and groups that we both like. And Anna basically just was like, wow, these are really interesting words because like Anna just doesn't like trend it's not it's not it's not you like you guys are the same in that way like it's not your touchstone like you don't have to drop down on that in the same way so sometimes I just go out and do some recon and I come back and I let you know like what's up so like how of this book because when I heard a marvelous time ruining everything I was like that's so Samantha energy because also like nothing is ruined enough that someone else can't fix it yeah yeah like nothing it's None sort of, of like these challenges are real. It's like this pram. I can't emphasize this enough how much this bothered me. Uncle Guard gives her a new pram for the doll. And it's like this fun surprise gift, like a post-birthday gift, which, by the way, love a post-birthday gift moment. Beautiful. <laughs> they bring this out. She makes the decision to listen to these twins who are like whose pure brand is chaos. As far as I'm concerned, like the only thing they buy at the department stores mentioned in this book is chaos. And the dog, of course, runs away. At one point, Samantha can't keep up because she's pushing the pram. And they're like, leave it behind. They're like, we don't have time for this right now. And she abandons it on the streets, never mentioned again. And it's like, this is the measure of this chick's privilege is like, I'm abandoning (laughs) a very expensive toy on the street. I'll be honest. I lost track of the pram just like Samantha. So I can't. I I was like, I'm dropping down on this pram. Like, where is it? But you pick like a thing each time. We know. You always have like a thing where you're like, I follow this closer. And you do like you follow it closer than me. And I'm like, wow, I totally like I missed it. That's basically how I nailed my English major like senior seminar was we had to read Ulysses three times. And I was like, I will be tracking how the two main (laughs) characters are coming together and like mapping that. And the professor was like, "Um, okay, And we'd be talking about something totally different. He'd be like, Mary, any thoughts? And I'm like, just so we're all aware, like this is where these two characters are right now. Yeah. And thank you. And he was like, wow, okay, um, fine. 
I do need you to know that I also I am aware that Samantha is not real. The day that she was born, it was a Sunday. Mm-hmm. She's Gemini. We could have guessed that. Val. Could have. Same exact birthday as Dorothy and Lange. <gasps> no relation to Allison that I'm aware of. Allison Lang, Dorothy Lang. Are you guys related? Please tell us. Here is a really important connection. Like, honestly, I was reading through her birthday VIP list and it is like truly so shockingly incomprehensible. Helena Bottom Carter, Stevie Nicks, Scott so Jizzick, don't care about that. Warren Hill, John Wayne, Jeremy Corbyn, Sally Ride. Here's what I deduce wow. from this. No one asked. In the way that her personality is so mercurial and all over the place because of the authorship issues, is this birthday like it's the least revelatory one we've ever had because there's no pattern. There's nothing to discern. From this that. was like, I mean, in a moment I was like, actually, is Val Tripp actually trying to teach us about the history of anarchism? It's it's so interesting you say that. The Dow Jones shares a birthday with Samantha Parkington, but so does the death of, uh, let me get this right. Following the death of Tsar Nicholas III in 1894, the last Tsar Nicholas is crowned ruler of Russia in 1917. The Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, seized power. Anyway, she's connected to communism. That's all tied to her birthday. Did you know when that Tsar was murdered, he was assassinated and he was like kind of blown up and they still did open casket. And King Edward from England went because he was it's like his uncle. And so he shows up and he was like, they were like, how was it? Oh, my God. Like he was murdered. This is terrible. Like rich people stuff. And he was like, honestly, it's just like smelled really bad. You know, I know that like we've talked about this on other iterations of the pod. You know that when Addie and her father were like pushing through the crowd to get access to Lincoln, stuff was not good by Philly. No. We no, should also say we're recording this on the day of a funeral of a very important American, John Lewis. And you were brave enough that you were able to like watch the coverage today. But I'm like barely recovered from watching that. I watched President Obama's eulogy and was honestly like crying. And it was it was so moving. And it's like, yeah, we've been making light of this book as kind of sites of like meaningless trouble and yeah. like the twins causing totally meaningless trouble in this book. And and it's kind of like fun to read this book in, in a kind of like scary time. But, you know, obviously he was known for um, many civil rights uh, milestones of which he played a significant role. Um, and obviously the phrase like good trouble, he he was telling his parents who didn't really understand his need to be involved in these movements at a grassroots level and to put himself in physical danger, be arrested so many times as a young man. And he said, like, this is good trouble that I'm getting into. And he has to pursue that. And, you know, it's I don't know. I mean, this this death has really touched me like it, it's made it's been very sad to have someone who represented so much kindness and devotion to issues of equity and inclusion um, pass at a moment when it seems like we need those kind of voices more than ever. So, yeah, that was a rough juxtaposition from reading Samantha to watching that funeral. I was like, wow, to then like knowing who our president is. It's it's tough to say the least. 
I will say something, sometimes the absolute best thing you can do is to not participate. And I think one of the, the, I will not, I don't think it's grace. I think it's uh, stubbornness. I think there have been a few moments where the presence of certain people would be so detrimental and toxic. It's better that they're not there. Yeah, totally agree That's what with I'll you. say about that. Totally I agree. I was in Atlanta and I walked by the mural that like a lot of people have seen now um, of him as a hero. And it's like huge. Like it's very hard to tell how big that mural of John Lewis is and a whole kind of like beautiful memorials have like popped up all around that in the city. Um, I think what's been so so like productive, like I think the conversations around monuments have changed so much in three, four months when there was a movement to rethink um, the naming of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which John Lewis famously marched across with many others. And then people saying, no, like we're not doing what's been done to Martin Luther King Jr., which is reducing this to being one person one day. Mm. Right. Like if all you've ever learned about John Lewis is like literally one walk, like you're not learning about voter suppression, right? You're not learning about right. a movement in a community. And I think like if he had died 10 years ago, they would have just renamed the bridge and then he would have been canonized in like that very specific American way where like people are absolutely enamored with civil rights leaders when they're put in one specific pocket as right. if like the issues they talked about are gone. So I think that's been kind of like a sign of growth, right? Like that people are saying, no, like we actually need to grapple with like his legacy and voter suppression. Um, I saw a tweet today um, and it was Jelani Cobb saying, believe it or not, I'm not at this funeral because I'm doing a documentary about voter suppression and like that that's like a way to honor John Lewis as mm. well. I have no idea how we got from the pram to this, but I don't either, but I just want to pivot and this doesn't relate, but I did bring a guest with me to the podcast today and she's been like uncharacteristically quiet, but Oh no, Alice. I I would love to introduce you to my close personal friend, Alice Roosevelt Longworth. And, you know, in reading this biography, it is sort of stunning to think about the different kinds of ways, just thinking about elite white women, like need to note that very specific um, limitation to some of these conversations, but um, different ways of thinking about women's involvement in politics. And so thinking about voting, thinking about suffrage, that she was against the suffrage movement and didn't think it was needed because she famously held salons in her house in D.C., and could have politicians over for dinner and effectively like through soft power kind of get her intentions out there and change minds and change votes. And uh, she had a friend who was actually voted to be one of the um, first represent female representatives from Ohio. And when her own husband died while in office, people said, like, you should fill his seat or run to replace him. You could be elected. And she didn't want to because, again, she thought there was other ways of affecting that kind of change. So I think it's interesting just to drop down on some of these historical figures who actually don't get spoken of as like I don't think there's famous anti-suffrage women. Not to me anyway. I didn't grow up hearing about like, oh yeah, this person was against women's right to vote. And so it was interesting to read that and to sit with like the ways that the Roosevelts are and are not driving this story. Like Cornelia is not Alice Roosevelt in this moment. Um no, because this is not and- what she would have done. To your point about anti-suffrage leaders, as Alison Lang writes about in her book, a lot of them 
thought that like almost like their married anonymity was a source of their power. Like they almost always went by like Mrs. and then like three men's names. And part of it was in this contrast to the suffragists like Cornelia who are hyper visible using pageantry, right? Like by the teens, they're they're trying to be anonymous, right? Like, oh, you know, like I'm not important. Like I don't sign petitions. Um, but it's very much similar to Phyllis Schlafly where it's like, look at me and don't look at me. Yes. I think like, honestly, I know this is a shock. I think Grand Mary is on Goodreads. I couldn't find a name attached to this account, but they wrote in a question. I didn't even know you could write a question. Wow. One question was, is this when Samantha and Nellie become sisters? And I'm like, spoiler. What? Um, And the second question was, okay, Valerie Tripp, why, all caps, is Aunt Cornelia speaking outside to a promiscuous mixed gender audience on women's suffrage in 1905 when women's suffrage wasn't an issue yet? Interesting. A lady would never speak publicly outside. And I was like, Grandmary, is that you? Like, genuinely, I was like, Grandmary, is that you? And then I went to my happy place, which is reviews, and I found our new best friend, Irene. Like all American Girl books, it's great history. I have an older friend in her 80s, and I buy them for her since she is into history. And I was like, Irene, girl, this is her life. I, I mean, it's like she can remember. It's like, remember when? And she's like, yep. It's like, like a, yeah, just it like there. yesterday. Oh, my God. Like, I'm thrilled that we'll get to, like, keep talking about suffrage. Like, when we come around our next corner, it's like we'll be very, very close to the ratification centennial of 1920. Like, that will all be August. Like, Samantha, like, it's a ride. I I truly have no idea where this is going, but I wonder if like when Cornelia was giving her speech, was Guard giving his own speech at perhaps a less well attended protest about human car rights? (laughs) Yes. Someone wrote to us and said, like, we do learn Guard's profession. Do you want to know it? And I said, absolutely absolutely not. not. Don't tell me ever. I hope to never learn what he does for money. Uh, will we ever truly know? No. He's like a Robert Durst type figure. Like you can't really handle it. Um, but I think we'll learn enough to like satiate us in the meantime. I'm excited. I, I mean, I'm like, I'm enthused. I'm terrified. I would love to know more information about where this is going or like where Val's head is at, but you know, all things in due time, I guess. So we've gotten a few different people asking what we recommend in terms of books about orphans. Okay. Which is complicated because Samantha is and isn't an orphan. Like she does not have her biological parents, but she has people watching her. Like she has many people in her life. Um, A book that's very good about women having to like give up children or like the different ways that pregnant women might end up not being able to raise their children um, is a book by Regina Kunzel called Fallen Women and Problem Girls. Um, There's also a fantastic book by Jesse B. Ramey called Child Care in Black and White. Mm -hmm. And it looks at the evolution of orphanages to daycare and the different ways that like conversations around child care for parents who are working is racialized and like children are sometimes taken from parents um do you have other orphan content that you enjoy (laughs) 
I don't know if enjoy is the right word. Um, I really want to revisit the original Annie movie now that it's so obvious that it's inspired the illustrators of this book to a degree that's scary, almost litigious, you might say. <laughs> You're trying. I will also recommend um, a book by Barbara Raymond called The Baby Thief, uh, which is the real story of this woman named Georgia Tan. Like part of what makes orphan history really complicated is a lot of people of Samantha's time who were, quote, orphans had parents. Hmm. Right. But like different people in power took those children away and effectively made them orphans so they could be adopted. Hmm. Georgia Tan um, kidnapped people from women that she deemed to be unfit parents and sold them to the highest bidder often. So that's a very like provocative story about like the different ways that like child care systems often actually really failed kids. Hmm. Summer read. Um, <laughs> An uplifting book. Yes. Um, but if people have birthday wishes, like how should they find you? Oh my God. What a thrill. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney one, two, three. And I think this episode drops on Monday and I think on Tuesday I'm giving a public talk at a public library about bibliotherapy or the use of books as medicine. Um, and I'll relate it to some kind of COVID bibliotherapy that's happening out in the world. If you are bored and have nothing else to do, um, I will post the Zoom link on my Instagram account. So you can check that out there. Allison, you know, if people need to check in with you about like orphan culture or yes. suffragettes or, you know, Valerie Tripp sightings, where might they find you? I'm at Allison Horrocks on Instagram and Twitter. Um, we also love, we got some nice voicemails this week. We love when you call our line Ooh. or visit our website. Uh, special thank you to in, uh, Elizabeth, who is interning with us this summer and has been doing a great job keeping up with our links and our website. Thank um, you. Yes, doing a fantastic job. Feel free to visit us there or to visit our social media channels. Uh, and to visit our store on Redbubble um, and find that through our website because it kind of has a funky spelling, uh, not at all for legal or copyright reasons. No, 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 never. I don't, no, no, I don't, no, 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 I don't no. involve myself with that. That's a question for the attorneys that we're not paying. <laughs> um, <laughs> so very exciting. I'm very excited to see where this all goes. Um, there was something I was going to say to you and now I can't remember what it is. It's about polar. I don't know. I finished my bottle. <laughs> So, you know, it's appropriate that we're wrapping. Well, Allison, this has been a real delight and a joy. And I really don't know where this is going, but I can't wait to see what's next. She's going to save the day. Oh, God. I'm scared. Okay. I am scared, too. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.